Random Manx Productions and the Credible Nerds present The Fourth Taviran, a Wheel of Time podcast. The Wheel of Time turns, and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Let the dragon ride again on the winds of time. Hey, Wheel of Time fans, it's time to roll the dice. Welcome everyone to the fourth Tavir and a Wheel of Time podcast. We are your hosts, the Credible Nerds. Today we'll be talking about chapters 16 through 20 from book one, The Eye of the World. And this is episode four of our Wheel of Time podcast. My name is Justin. And as always, I have my fellow Taviran with me, Mark. Hey guys, how's it going? So we want to thank our new fans and new listeners that have joined us recently. It means a lot to us that you guys have joined us here on the fourth Taviran. Um, feel free to check out our other podcasts as well. Uh, we do a lot of Marvel movie reviews, DC reviews, Star Wars, Star Trek. But for this, the fourth Taviran podcast, we'll be obviously focusing on the books from Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series. Uh, well, just a note, we try to keep the chapter reviews that we do, like in this episode, 16 through 20, we try to keep them mostly spoiler free. We might let slip some minor spoilers here and there. Uh, for those that haven't read the book or it's been a while, maybe you've forgotten stuff and want to reread it for the first time. Uh, we try to keep it mostly spoiler free. But then when we jump to at the end of the podcast, we usually talk about something that's related to the wheel of time like last uh, episode uh, we spent some time talking about the breaking of the world those discussions will have spoilers just so you know if, if you're trying to stay spoiler free mm-hmm. yeah we we try to <clears throat> like Dustin saying we don't want to ruin it for anybody we don't because uh, there's a lot of cool things that come out um you know a lot of information sometimes we get talking and we've read i've read this series maybe five times right so sometimes it's hard for me to remember what's been discussed and what hasn't compared to where we're at or we just get talking we say things so things will slip out we don't mean for it to happen but you know we just uh we want to talk about things but at the end of the episode you know when we go into our little tangent you know if you don't definitely don't want spoilers um might want to skip that part just because we will talk about things that are spoilers, you know, different people, different ages, whatever it is. And so, uh, but bear with us. If, if we're giving way too much up, just let us know saying, Hey, you know, you guys are going too far or, or this is perfect, you know, perfect amount of information. Let us know. So we know, cause uh, you know, sometimes what we think is great may not be awesome. And we, we want to make a awesome episode for you guys. So just let us know. Yeah, definitely. Uh, reach out to us on social media. We're on Twitter at Credible Nerds. Same thing with Instagram at Credible Nerds. Send us an email, um, CredibleNerds at gmail.com. So we'd love to hear from you. We've been having a little bit of back and forth with some fans on Twitter and it's been great. So we enjoy that and so keep it up. Um, so the first part of our podcast, we like to review the latest Wheel of Time news. And recently there's been some some new writers and staff that have been announced over the past few weeks in regards to the Amazon prime series that's in development right now. 
and a lot of it's on Twitter. Rafe Judkins will tweet out, you know, who joined the staff, who's the new writer. He'll do some of that, but it's pretty sporadic and um, hit and miss. Uh, he's busy writing the show and getting that going. So, you know, he doesn't spend a lot of time on Twitter. If you want to get the latest Wheel of Time news and probably what we look at the most besides Twitter is uh, the dailytrollock.com. You can also follow him on this this guy on, on Twitter, at Narg, N-A-R-G, who if you forget, uh, he was, Narg he's is one of the Trollocs from the first couple chapters. Yeah, he's the talking one, right? Yeah, he's the only Trolloc that talked. And he's actually pretty funny to follow. He kind of talks in a Trolloc voice in his posts. So <laughs> it's entertaining as well as informative. So check out Narg on Twitter or dailytrolloc.com. And get the get some good news. Um, so he made a post. I was kind of writing, you know, the latest announcements down for myself. But then I found his website, and he had it all written up and ready to go. So I'm just kind of using what he had already uh, gathered and established. So the latest uh, news is that uh, obviously the showrunners Rafe Judkins, but some writers have been added to the list. Amanda Kate Schumann. Celine Song, who is a, going to be a staff writer, and Paul and Michael Clarkson are going to be writers. And then a, an assistant to Rafe was recently announced, Patrick Strapazon. Those are kind of the latest staff to be announced. I think we'll be hearing some more here in the near future. And also the book consultant, Sarah Nakamura, is pretty active on Twitter. She has a lot of good posts. So, Did it, so I read this list of executive producers. I saw this a few days ago. Yeah. And the only one that I was like, questioning was ted field okay um just because you know so he's done executive producer on quite a few things but his last ones are like the big ones that people know would be like the new jumanji Mm. right spring breakers bad teachers things like that right the heartbreak kid he was a producer on swing vote all about steve i don't know if you've seen these movies i've seen most the texas chainsaw massacre last samurai right Mm. and those ones like last samurai is kind of maybe closer to what we're looking for, but the ones he's done lately kind of worries me because I'm like, oh, you know, this is not that type of film he's been doing lately. Yeah. And so it kind of worries me, you know, that, you know, he'll have his own take and it might not be the take of the fans. Yeah, that's true. I mean, mostly the executive producers, most of the time are just the money guys, but they do, a lot of them try to get involved and change storylines and, you know, have more input than they should. So yeah, that is kind of strange that um, you got these kind of raunchy comedy films under his belt and he's going to get involved with the Wheel of Time. So I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens there. I like to see the consulting producer that it's Harriet McDougal. I mean, if you don't know, that's the late Robert Jordan's wife. So I think that's, she'll have some good input. Hopefully she has a, a lot of control or ability to you know say yay or nay on things mm-hmm. that, would, that would give me a little more comfort oh yeah yeah you know definitely to kind of allow what what will pass and what won't and because uh, i'm sure she has a better idea what it really is than any of us would right yeah. uh, so so yeah no that that's good so hopefully we see something you know i know they're kind of the money guys but you know we've seen other money guys pull out because they don't like the vision you know yeah it's true. Another thing on this uh, post was that the episode length is going to be about an hour. That's better. That's good. Better than a half hour. And so far, 
there's two titles, episode titles. Episode one, season one is Leave Taking. And season one, episode two is Shadows Waiting. Those are the only episode titles we have at this point. That's, those will probably be the pilot episodes. Mm-hmm. Leave Taking will be. I bet, I bet that one will take us to when they leave. Right. Up to like chapter five or six or whatever it was. Mm. Yeah. And Shadows Waiting, I bet, will take them through where we're going to talk about today. Probably. Yeah, because you got to have a big action scene, you know, to start off an episode or a season. And really, the big action scene is the Trollocs attack, Kimmons Field, and then they leave. So that's it for this episode's Wheel of Time news. If you are aware of any and want us to talk about it, uh, just tag us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook even and let us know or send us an email about it and we'll look at it and We'll talk about it on our next episode. Moving into the chapter reviews, chapters 16 through 20. So we last left our heroes. They had made it to the town of Berlon and Rand and Matt had some uh, scuffle with some white cloaks. And then they went back to the inn. When they get back to the inn, they find out that Nynaeve had arrived. She had followed them because she had the this idea that she was going to save them, bring them back to the Emmons Field and get them out of this mess that uh, Moraine has dragged them into. Uh, they they go to back to the inn. They find that Nynaeve's there, and they they find that Moraine, Nynaeve, Egwene, and Lan are kind of sitting together talking. They all sit down together. They ask, you know, how did you find us? She says that she followed their trail, which Lan was kind of surprised to hear because he's like this master tracker and woodsman. He didn't felt that he didn't leave a trail. There was a couple times in the previous chapters where he kind of erase their trail or make it so it'd be hard to track them. So he was surprised that she had been able to do that. So they kind of talk about what, why they're there. And Rand says that, you know, they, they're going to Tarvalin and that the Aes Sedai are going to help them and keep them safe. And Naini doesn't really like that idea at all. Yeah, no, it, um, <clears throat> I always liked it. I kind of like this part. So I did not like Nynaeve, Nynaeve. 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 <laughs> <laughs> the the pronunciation pronunciation of these names are very important to our listeners, so I want to make sure I get them correct. Um, <laughs> uh, I I like that she showed up because I thought it showed how awesome the people from Emmonsfield really are, or from Menethrin, right? Because here they are as like some country folk, and they're always overlooked. Like the whole book, Rand's just a sheep herder. What can a sheep herder do? You know, Matt's from. Mm-hmm with them, right? Like they always overlook because of where they're from. But then you start to realize at the end of the book, like, oh, everyone that ever comes out of this place is freaking awesome. And uh, so, you know, here she is. She follows a warder's trail, not any warder, Land Mandragoran. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, follows him, gets there. Then, you know, like you said, I'm taking these guys home. I always thought it was like, oh, dang. Like I remember when she showed up my first time reading, I was just like, oh man, crap's about to get real. You know what I mean? Because she's so, you know, they always talk about her like being so strong headed. So everything. Um, But then she gives. Right. And as I was rereading this time, really starting to put things together. I wonder if she gives because Rand's a Taviran. Yeah, maybe. And he was saying, no, we have to go. Because that's totally out of her character to just give in to, especially the boys, right? Who she views as young and not knowing what to do with their lives. Yeah, but I never connected those that dot those dots until this time. I was like, oh, like that's completely against, you know, what she would normally do. And that's exactly what 
Taveran does. You know, it sh- you know shapes patterns, shapes the threads around them for their use, and that's exactly what you see happen here. And it was amazing uh, to watch that happen, even if it's on a small level. And after I read that, I'm like, oh, I've got to really pay attention to, to all these things if I'm going to catch them all, which I won't. But it's cool to see all the little ones. Good. And Nynaeve plays a huge part later on in the story, multiple times. So yeah. So she joins them. She says that she made arrangements for someone else from Devon Ride to come over and uh, take care of Emmonsfield while she's gone. They kind of, her and Rand have a, a conversation just amongst themselves. And she tells Rand about Tam, that he had left Emmonsfield when he was younger and he came back with a, a wife and a, and a baby. And that, you know, obviously that's Carrie Althor. So he, he found out that Tam did leave and he was born outside of Emmonsfield, which is where he's at right now. He's trying to find his identity. His, his world's been rocked when he found out that Tam might not be his father and wasn't his father. He's trying to put those, those pieces together. And Nynaeve gives him some, some information that's, that helps him do that. So in this chapter, basically, Nynaeve decides to join the, the crew and be a part of the team. Chapter 17, Watchers and Hunters. This chapter icon is the dragon's fang. And so whenever there's a dragon's fang, which is the dark part of the Aes Sedai symbol, uh, you know there's going to be some dark friends or Murdral or you know, something like that that's dangerous. So that's what we get here in this chapter. Ren leaves Nynaeve, goes in to watch Tom, who's the, the gleeman, perform. There's a lot of singing and he's playing his harp and his flute. We really get to see Tom perform, you know, do his thing for the first time. We see how awesome he is. And Tom's always been one of my favorite characters. When I first read it, I really enjoyed him and his interaction with with Rand and Matt and just everyone, you know, all the stuff that he can do. You know, he comes across as this this gleeman who's just out for entertainment, but yeah, he's got this danger side to him too. So this was good to see. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, Tom's just one of those characters that you just like. So I, you know, I've always liked him from the start. So it's cool to, you know, like you said, see him, you know, in his, uh, in his element, because he kind of, you know, same thing, he gets sucked in by Taveran and his whole story changes from what he is, but we get to see him here really in his element, who he is. And, and I always kind of like that. But I wanted to point out something that I've always thought was cool before that. So while Tom's playing his his music and stuff, everyone's dancing and Rand, they all, Rand and the boys and everyone, they all dance with, like Rand dances with Nynaeve, Moraine and Egwene and Matt's dancing with everyone. So it's just this moment where, you know, they've escaped danger. There's danger ahead of them. But yeah, here they are just having a good time, letting their hair down. Uh, Moraine's even dancing, who she's really, you know, usually pretty protocol by the book type person. But here she is just having fun with everyone. So it's kind of that last, one of those last moments where they're, they can have a good time before everything just falls apart. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I didn't recognize that. Like, I guess, you know, as you look at the book a whole, that's true, right? It is really the last time where things are just semi-normal. Yeah, it's good that they had that moment. Because, and even they refer back to it. I was, I'm a couple books ahead and there was a part where Matt was kind of thinking about, man, I even danced with Moraine. That's crazy. (laughs) Remember it books later, which is kind of cool. You know what's always funny about Matt? Like, I think it's like the most hilarious thing in the world is that he hates Aes Sedai, but he's always with them. Always. Right? (laughs) This is the most funny thing ever, I think. It's wherever he goes. It just cracks me up. I don't know why. It's like one of those little inside jokes or something. I don't know. 
but this makes me laugh. Yeah. So after this, they, they leave the common room and the dancing kind of dies down. Rand sees the murder all. The murder all tells him that he belongs to the great Lord of the Dark. Then he leaves. They, they have this thing where they can travel by the shadows. So they can enter a shadow and disappear. And I think they transport themselves to somewhere else where there's a shadow. That's the impression I always got. So he, this murder all does that. Um, so Lan shows up with a sword and then Rand tells him, you know, what just happened. And so they, Lan tells him, okay, we got to get out of here. So they all pack up their stuff and go to the stables, get on their horses and start to head towards the, the gate to head to Camelin, which is um, east. So we're heading north to Barillon and they change direction to go to Camelin, which is east of Barillon. So they make it to the front gate. And as they're trying to get the watchman to open the gate, five white cloaks show up and ask them, you know, who are they? Where are they going? One of the white cloaks is Bornhold. You know, the one that uh, Rand had a confrontation with. So Bornhold's all, oh, I can get my revenge here. And so he says, you guys are dark friends. You're coming with me back to our camp. And then Moraine starts talking and she uses her I said I tricks, the one power to make herself uh, grow really tall, really loud. She starts talking to them. Bornhold attacks Moraine. She def- deflects it and they, they all kind of fall down together and they start to go through the gate. And Rand sees Moraine that she's taller than the wall around the city and that's and that Moraine actually steps over the wall and then when she comes on the other side of the wall she's back to her you know usual size so I always wondered about that because it kind of made it seem like it was a, a trick or a kind of this optical illusion yeah like kind of like the mask of mirrors right yeah but then she's able to actually she steps over the wall so if it was an illusion why would she have to do that i don't know it just i was always wondering okay was it an illusion or did she really grow really tall in that moment hmm i don't remember her stepping over the wall but i remember her growing big i have to read it again but i always assumed it was just like an illusion you know like a mask of mirrors type thing um but i was always surprised why i never saw it again like we never saw anything like that again yeah Uh, but uh yeah kind of one of those interesting things i wonder why but uh, I, I'm going to stick with it. It was an illusion, but it doesn't make sense, obviously, that she just stepped over the wall. Because if she really can make herself big, that is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and we never know because it never pops up again. That's kind of a one trick that she did once. So, yeah, they escape. Everyone was kind of like, whoa, what just happened? But they're, they have to run, so they can't really talk about it. So they take off. Uh, about an hour later, they see some flames coming from the city and, uh, we find out that the inn that they were staying in, the stag and lion burned because of the, the white cloaks, I'm assuming. But, um, so they, they take off head towards Camelin. And in, in this group, uh, we got, so we got the usual group with Rand, Matt, Perrin, Tom, Moraine, Egwene, and Lan, and now Nynaeve has joined them. So that's the group at this point. The next chapter, chapter 18, the Camelin Road. And the chapter icon is the Trollocks Skull and Fist. And the last time we saw this was when the Trollocks attacked the two rivers. Kind of got an idea. These, these uh, chapter icons give us a good idea what's, uh, what characters we're going to see or what the tone of the chapter is going to be. So I always like to see, you know, I probably didn't look at the titles of the chapter that much, but I looked more for the icon when I was reading. 
especially mm-hmm. for the first time. They're on the this is this kind of a starts out kind of mundane. They're on the road to Camelin. It's three days later, and they stop at a hill and they're looking around, see who, if they're being followed. But Land, they don't see anybody, but Land knows they have a, a Murdraw, some Trollocs, and they're being chased. And so they pick up the pace. But then they hear this horn, and this is when it kind of gets kind of crazy at this point. The horn is the Trollocs are following, and so they got to book it. They get on their horses and start riding. So the, the sound of the horn came from the west. They keep riding east, but then Moraine breaks off from the group and heads west back towards them. And she says to Lan, who wants to go with her, the light go with you, last lord of seven towers. And heads off. So Ran overhears that and he's like, what's the lord of the seven towers? What does that mean? And we'll find out later. So, <laughs> so they hear the horns. They're getting closer. They keep going at the same pace. And then they're about five miles away. Land comes back because he'd gone on some, a little bit of scouting as well. He says that there's a bunch of Trollocs coming in. Three fists, maybe five, and they're each led by a Murdral. And they're coming fast. And so Moraine and Land start talking, okay, well, this isn't working. We get, need to do something. So they decide to head north, to leave the road and head north. And so they take off, hoping to, to lose them, but it doesn't work. The Trollocs keep following them, and they catch up to them. Everyone turns to fight. Land charges in, saying, shouting for the Seven Towers. Um, Rand shouts, Manethrin, Manethrin. And Perrin does too. Matt shouts something in the old tongue. <laughs> I'm not going to try and say it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He shouts something in a different language. And then they start fighting. Um, Rand is trying to do his best. And Lan's just going crazy, killing Trollocs left and right. Tom's doing a good job. The girls are just, they have some staffs. They're trying to do stuff. They end up killing a Murdral. And when you kill a Murdral, well, they cut off his head. He's going to die, but it takes like the rest of the day to for him to die. When you do that, all the Trollocs that are linked to that Murdral just kind of don't know what to do and they go crazy and they just run off basically. Fall to the ground and don't do anything because they're just there's a link there and it's pretty powerful and you kind of want to kill the the Murdral that's leading the Trollocs to defeat the whole fist of Trolloc. But there's still more. There's still a couple more Murdral that they gotta fight. And here we see the power of Moraine. And she takes out her staff, but she also grabs an ang- an Angriol out of her pocket. And the Angriol allows her to channel more of the one power than what normally she could do. So she uses the, the earth. She stabs her staff into the, the earth and it causes an earthquake. Some of the, the Trollocs fall down. And then she shoots flames, uses fire to to attack the Trollocs and the Murdral. And then Land makes them go ahead and she he grabs Moraine and they keep going north. So with the Angriol, the Angriol, do they just uh, like do they just allow people to draw more power safely, or do they actually increase the amount of power that somebody can cat? Like, right? Because everyone has their own ability, like they're so strong. But do the Angriol, like, do they actually make them stronger or do they just make it so they can draw more power without burning themselves out? And I kind of said that twice, but more clearly the second time. (laughs) 
That's a good question. Let me look at the white book real quick. So, because because I th I think that's an important distinction uh, between the two. Uh, you know, whether they make you more powerful, because some of them don't have the buffer. They don't have that buffer to allow you to stop. Like it, well, it doesn't. It doesn't take you to a certain point and then stop. It just allows you to draw however much you want, which I always kind of felt weird because it's like, well, you could do that anyway. All right. So the white book has this to say, one of the ways to reduce the chance of accidental stealing or burnout is to use an Angreal and Sangreal artifacts made during the age of legends. Um, they enhance the channeler's ability to draw and focus the one power. An Angreal allows the channeler to safely control a greater amount of the power than she or he could possibly draw unaided. So Angreal are similar, but much more powerful. So it sounds like both, right? Yeah. It buffers them from burning out, but it allows them to draw more. Like, so it makes them str actually stronger. Yeah. And it prevents it's a buffer so they don't burn themselves out because if they don't have an Angreal, they can still themselves, but the Angreal prevents that. Okay. Okay. No, that's good to know. I've always, you know what I mean? I was never really 100% sure on that. Yeah. So using the Angreal, she's able to channel more power and use the earth and fire to to use it to attack the Trollocs. They, they head towards, head north. We find out that they are heading towards a, a huge city. They come up to it and it looks abandoned. You know, there wasn't anybody there. It was desolate, but yet still pretty in good condition considering how ancient it is. And we find out that the city or the, yeah, the city was called Eridol and it was an ally to Menethrin in the Trolloc Wars, which was hundreds of years ago. Thousands. And Menethrin's been destroyed, but now it has a, a new name called Shadar Logoth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, uh, this part's pretty cool. This is kind of where it really picks up. So the first chapter, a couple chapters here, we, you know, some things happen, but it's kind of slow, uh, especially last chapter where they're just kind of running. They had that one cool fight, but then you just read them about running over like 10 hills. Whoopie do. So, but then we get here and it's this mysterious city and you don't know what, but Lan and Moiraine know something, right? They kind of talk about it, but they don't really elaborate to everybody. All you really hear is Moiraine say, don't touch anything. You know, you know, don't don't take anything. Basically, don't wander off. And uh, you know, so they get to this town, uh, and you know, they're told it's Shattered Logoth, right? Are they? They're told that it's both Shattered Logoth and Eridol. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, they kind of learn a little bit about it, but not much. And it's just kind of creepy. I remember, you know, when I'm reading, it, I was like, "Ooh, this is like creepy, like a ghost, not a ghost town, but a ghost city." Yeah. It's like if and, New York was, if no one lived there, it was just creepy. Yeah, you know, like kind of like a I Am Legend yeah. type, right? It's just like, oh my gosh, like look at this place. It's huge. And um, except there's no mannequins named Frank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, so I could just imagine because they talk about how large this place is. And I wish somebody would draw, or if there is one out there, link it to us, you know, kind of a drawing of what Shadar Logoth would look like. Because it sounds really big. Obviously, it was one of the major cities in the Trolloc Wars. So it had to be quite large. And so here they are in, the, in this huge town, or city, I should say. And of course, Matt gets right idea <laughs> to be like hey let's go check things out and you know as normal 
you know, Rand and Perrin are like, okay, like, okay, we're in this big, creepy, abandoned town that's called Shadar Logoth. Let's go check things out. And Moraine told us not to do this and or to touch anything, but yeah, let's do this. Yeah. All right. Let me set my stupid sign down and I'll pick up this fire, uh, you know, this uh, thing and we'll go. So off they go. You know, they're out searching around and uh, checking things out and you kind of get even a bigger uh, picture of how large this city is. Then they go, is they go into like a cellar, right? Or something like that. Like they go down some stairs into a basement. Yeah, they, they go into a building and they see that there's some stairs and like, hey, let's go down the creepy stairs into the dark basement or whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, uh, you know, the, the first 10 weren't dumb enough, but. <laughs> yeah. It's more than a basement. It's like this building that has this lower levels and they go down there. So, yeah. yeah, like my thought process would be more like, wait, should I go down these creepy stairs in this creepy city where no one can hear me scream? Why, yes, yes, I should. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, <huh. laughs> so they go down in the, you know, this basement and they see kind of like a little treasure hoard, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, they start kind of looking through it. Matt picks up this dagger. He's like, I'll oh, check out this dagger, you know? And, and of course, uh, it's Perrin that's like, oh, we were told not to, to take, you know, to accept any gifts or, you know, give anything, you know, take anything anyone gives us. And he's like, but no one gave it to me. So, you know, I'm cool. Yeah. But they also met Mortis here. Yeah. Yeah. He, and, and he's the one that actually leads them down into the lower levels. I forgot about that. Um, so he says, I am a treasure hunter. Follow me. And he's the one that leads them down there. Oh, yeah. that's right. And he's like, I've got my pack horses back here, huh? Yeah. I just need you to help me carry things out and then I'll pay, I'll give you some money. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Okay, so they're kind of lured down there, you know, down in this basement where no one can hear them scream. And uh, <laughs> and so, um, you know, they go down there like three good lads, and um, they're down there, and, you know, he takes it, and uh, they start talking to this Morty more, and he kind of gives off this just creepy vibe the whole time. Yeah, and this is where Rand sees that he doesn't have a shadow. Yeah, he doesn't have a shadow. So they kind of start questioning him. And then they mention that uh, uh, there's more people with him. Yeah. And so Mortis is like, what? There's more people? And then I think they say that one's an Aes Sedai. And, and then he, he kind of starts getting out of control then, right? Yeah. They get mad at him. And he disappears. And so they're like, oh, that's creepy. Well, let's go back. And we won't tell Moraine that we stole this knife from Shadar Logoth. And, you know, so obviously dumb choices follow dumb choices, but the whole time you're reading it, you're just so engrossed. I'm like, I really liked this whole part, uh, you know, and Mordith is, well, we get to read about him pretty much forever now. Uh, not all the time, but he's always around and he's always a big player. So he's, you know, someone to look into. Um, I'll talk about him a little bit more in one of my, you know, side discussions, but long story short, Mordith is basically represents an evil that destroyed evil, right? I don't know how else to explain it. Would you explain it like that? Yeah. So the evil that we've been talking about and reading about up till now with the Dark One and Balzaman and Trollocs and all that, 
that's all tied to Shaitan, the dark one who's imprisoned in Sheol Ghul and all that. Um, but this is a different kind of evil. This is kind of like the evil of man that became so great that it became a, a living thing is what I always pictured it as it's separate from the dark one's evil. Yeah. And in the, in the white book, they kind of de- describe it. If I remember right, they say something like that the people of Arid Hall decided to fight the shadow with evil tactics. Yeah. Making them evil in their own right. So they finally became so evil and no one knows what happened. People just disappeared. Whatever it was, whatever the evil was, became so bad, it it finally um, warped itself in, into something else. Mashadar. Mashadar. Yeah. So you know, you find out that this evil, whatever it was, created Mashadar, and you know, we get to introduce that into the next chapter. But you know, we, we see that these people really just became so evil they they killed themselves. Yeah. So the the three boys come back and Moraine's like, where you guys been? Rand kind of tells the story and mentions Mordeth. Moraine just freaks out like, what? What did you do? And so, but they end up just staying the night there, which I always thought was kind of weird. It's like, oh, we're in this crazy place. Uh, okay, well, let's, let's go to bed. We'll wake well, up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny because it's like, we re- they so they go in there because Moraine figures that the Trollocs won't follow them mm-hmm. because of Mashadar, right? Yeah. And, but I'm, I've always thought like, wait, if Mashadar was so bad that the Trollocs probably wouldn't follow him in there. Like, how was that better? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But maybe I, you know, you're just trying to get a reprieve, you know, like try to sneak out the back door kind of thing and get out of there before they see what happened. Mashadar is more passive, right? It doesn't try to seek you down and attack you initially where that's what the Trollocs are doing. The Trollocs know where to go. Amashadar is just there. Mm-hmm. Kind of like mindless, you know? Yeah. And and I think they talk about a little bit um, about Mashadar here. And they, you know, they basically say that uh, at one point, a bunch of Trollocs came into camp in the town. And the next morning, they were all gone. All of them destroyed. And the only thing that they saw was some red writing, like uh, from blood, that said Mashadar. And since then, Trollocs almost refused to go into Shadar Logoth unless Shadar Logoth, unless a Midral is is forcing them to. Yeah. And the name Shadar Logoth is translated to Shadows Waiting, which is episode two of the TV series. So we'll definitely get to, to this part in the second episode of the TV show, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to do, I don't know if they're going to do a book a season or um, more than that to move the story along. But, uh, you know, Robert Jordan's, like, I think we've said this before, he's kind of from the old writing where you spend a lot of time talking about not a lot. So (laughs) a lot of descriptive narrative. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So um, you spend a lot of time reading about, descriptions so you know obviously in the movies or those tv series you can't just put that in a movie that'd be crazy so so you're gonna see two episodes is gonna be you know 12 chapters yeah or more oh yeah or more some, yeah in some cases yeah and these chapters are quite long like right we're like a uh, hundred pages in the book already the next chapter chapter 20 
called Dust on the Wind. Wasn't there a like an old country song called Dust, oh, it was Dust in the Wind? Dust in the Wind. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought, thought of. I started singing that song in my head when you said Dust on the Wind. I'm like, nothing but dust in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> you just heard me sing. I apologize. <laughs> uh, this chapter icon is Trolloc, Skull, and Fist. So they're, it's the next day. They're trying to sneak out the back door, like you said. Land's leading them through the city. But then things start to go south. Uh, Matt, Rand, and Perrin, and Tom kind of get a little far behind, too far behind Lan and Moraine. And so they see as they are kind of spreading out, all of a sudden, this silver fog starts to come out and separates them, Lan and Moraine from the others. We find out that this fog is Mashadar, and you can't touch it because if you touch it, you'll die. So do you ever play The Floor is Lava when you're a kid? This is kind of this on steroids. So they, <laughs> they stop. Moraine tells them, hey, this is Mashadar. Don't touch it. We need to find a way out. And she points, she finds this star, says, follow that star to the river. We'll meet there. So she and Lan take off, which I always thought was like, <laughs> uh, why are you just leaving everyone? Because <laughs> it was like, they went through all this stuff to get them out of the two rivers. And then just her and Lan is like, okay, meet us at the river and just right off. <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch the crazy fog. It'll kill you. So they head off. So Rand and the rest of them start to, to go. They start to split up at this point. The Trollocs up here, uh, they start seeing more and more. And they hit, so not only do they have to avoid Mashadar the fog, the killer fog, but they got to avoid the Trollocs too. Everyone splits up basically to get out of the, the city gates and head to the river. So Tom, Matt, and Rand meet up at the gate and start heading towards the river. But then it switches to another point of view. We got Perrin and Egwin. They're, they're grouped together after they separated so they're kind of wandering they're wandering around trying to find the gate and then they get out of the gate and head towards the river too the trollocs are right behind them so they gallop on their horses off towards the river and they end up Perrin ends up riding off the edge of the the bank into the Aranal river and Egwene rides off somewhere else and so he's in the river the trollocs are throwing spears at him and he swims to the other side and he's by himself. Yeah. And this sounds like it's a serious river. This is like probably like the Colorado. Colorado, river, right? yeah. This is like, you know, maybe Mississippi. It's a, it's, it's a big river. And so, you know, the whole time he's swimming, he's just like, please make it. His lungs are burning. His arms are tired. And, and, uh, um, I, I don't know about you, but when I was reading this part, I was like reading so fast, right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? These guys are running. The Trollocs are going to get him. Mashadar is going to destroy people. And, uh, you know, we saw the Trollocs get killed by Mashadar. And so I'm just reading a thousand miles an hour. I think I finished this and I had to go back and read it again because I was just <laughs> I was yeah. reading so fast. But um, so he swims the other side, right? And he starts hollering for Egwene. He's like, Egwene, where are you? Yeah. And then she makes it to the other side. Like she, he eventually finds her. And I didn't the horse swim across. Yeah, I think so. Be Bella, the invincible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's in the next chapter though. But yeah. Oh, <clears throat> we don't know if Bella <laughs> across yet. Spoiler alert. Bella <laughs> survives. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
No. So then it, it switches back to Rand's point of view. And so Rand, Tom, and Matt are grouped together. And they're kind of doing the same thing. They're running from the, the Trollocs, following the star to the river. And just as they get to the river or close to it, um, three Trollocs jump out of the trees and Tom kills two of them. So Matt shoots one, but I guess that one still is alive. And he runs off to alert the others. So then they reach the bank and they see a boat there, a ship on the river. So they're about to talk to these guys. All of a sudden tro- the Trollocs come back. So they just jump on the boat and like, go, go, go. You got to go. <laughs> the captain, Bell Doman, who ends up being a major player throughout the series, um, he says, you know, what are you doing here? But then the Trollocs jump on the, the boat. And so he, they just cut the ropes and head off in, on the river, down the river. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine the pandemonium here, right? Like all these guys just run out of the trees all of a sudden. Your night watchman's asleep, right? They jump on their boat and they're like, let's go, let's go. Everyone's like, what's going on? Who cares? You see, they're coming. Like, let's go. Like, for who cares who I am? Let's get out of here, you know? And, uh, you know, Trollocs are coming and, you know, everyone's just so, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And, I mean, uh, and I had forgot that Bale Doman shows up this this early. Yeah, I, I was like, "Oh man, he's already here. We're already reading about this guy. That's awesome." Um, so yeah, they they finally convinced Bell Doman to be like, "Let let's go," you know. So they cut cut lines, and I think there's a little bit of a fight, right? Some of the Trollocs get on board, and you know they're fighting for their lives a bit, yeah. and they finally kill him or push away or whatever it is, and and get out down the down the river. And so the the boat is called the Spray. So Matt and Rand also gave up their silver coins that Moraine gave them in the first couple chapters. So, yeah, they gave him up to help pay for for travel, right? Because Bell Doman's basically like, "Why should I carry you on my boat? I should just toss you off for all the trouble you brought me." Yeah, the one coins that uh, they need to keep. Like, I, I've always wondered this too. Maybe mo- people have more insight. Why didn't Moraine just tell him? Like, you know, we see that there's always, especially with Matt, there's this huge distrust, right, with Ice and I. And the whole time, like the Aes Sedai do nothing but prove why they should be distrusted. Yeah. Yeah. It would have saved the whole group a lot of trouble if she would have said what they were, at least after they left the two rivers, right? You say, hey, by the way, those coins, um, don't lose them. <laughs> so here with the group splits up. And uh, so we got Rand, Matt, and Tom on the, the boat with Bell Doman. And then Egwene and Perrin are on the other side of the river. And then we don't know anything about Moraine, Lan, and Nynaeve at this point. But a spoiler alert, they're together. They're, they're in a group. So that's kind of where, where we leave. The, the, this is where our review of the chapters ends for this episode. So, mm-hmm. and, and these are great chapters and, and a great place for us to end too. Because a lot happens, you know, the, the group gets split. You know, here we are through the first 10, 12 chapters, whatever it is, 20, uh, 20 chapters yet, <laughs> 10, 12, 20, whatever. They've got numbers in them and, uh, you know, and they've all stuck together and it, you know, and it's kind of sound like, especially with the Eamon, Eamon Fielders that, Hey, we're in this together. We need to stay together. And now they're broken up. 
right? We have uh, some here, some there. Uh, we don't know where some of them are yet, but we know that they've just been scattered. And, uh, you know, now we get to really kind of see who, who people are, you know, outside their element, you know, and kind of see them become the people they're going to become. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot to look forward to here. And it, it's just a great fun action couple chapters here, uh, you know, with with a lot of major things. Mash, Mashadar become, uh, uh, becomes a major thing later in the books. Uh, Mordith becomes a major player. We get to meet him. Bale Doman, we get to meet him. Great. You know, he becomes, I guess, probably not like a, you know, tier one character, but definitely tier two or three, right? Yeah. I mean, he, his storyline is directly linked to the success or failure of these people. Yeah. Uh, you know, to the overall goal. And, you know, we get to meet him for the first time here. Um, we get to see Matt in these chapters. First time we really get to see him start talking the old tongue more and more. And, you know, what's that all about? Uh, you know, kind of just crazy. Uh I, I really, I really enjoy these chapters to, you know, a great opening to where we're going to go. Is, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we get to see Rand's story evolve to great measure, you know, here coming up and uh, it's a lot of fun. So stick with it. I mean, I know uh, that things are a little bit slow until now, but you know, these chapters will help pick it up for you and, and just keep going uh you know and and tell us right now who your favorite characters are who your least favorite characters are for me my least favorite character right now i remember reading is nynaeve mm. yeah. right i i couldn't stand she's my least favorite character for like the next six books so i'll continue to say her every time i answer that uh <laughs> my favorite character uh i think my favorite character right now is rand Right, I think that's yeah. going to be the pretty general answer, Rand, because we don't get to quite see the dynamic of Matt yet and the awesomeness of of Perrin and everything. Yeah, at this point, Matt's kind of a secondary character in the story, mm-hmm. especially in the next few chapters. He kind of fades into the background. He's more of a a prop more than anything, and a lot of it focuses on Rand. And yeah, from here on out, for the next probably the rest of this book, Rand is my favorite character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't think, uh, I mean, I guess we're talking about stuff that, you know, whatever, but I mean, Matt's around, but I don't think he really becomes a tier one character until book three, uh, you know, somewhere in book three, maybe even book four. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So at this point, we're probably going to start talking spoilers. So if you're uh, the type that doesn't want to know spoilers of the story, Uh, Thanks for joining us and listen to our next episode where we talk about chapters 21 through 25. And like you were saying, the story really picks up in these last two chapters, 19 and 20, and it just keeps going from here. So it gets good. Uh, We wanted to talk about the the seven Ajas of the Aes Sedai because the group is heading towards Tarvalin to go to the White Tower to be safe. And that's where all the, the I said I train and live for the most part. And that's their base, their home base. And there's seven Ajas. We talked a little bit about it last time, but uh, we want to get into it more here. There's seven, perhaps eight Ajas. Yeah. So the seven Ajas kind of have a, a, a weird symbolic 
uh, thing. And, and you learn more about this as you delve into the white book and the history of things like that. So originally after the breaking, there was no government. There was no Aes Sedai as we know them today. You know, there was no like group. There was just people trying to stay alive and people that could ca- channel doing what they could to, to survive and help those that they could as well. Eventually, you know, as time goes on and the White Tower is established, that's probably the biggest, most uh, impressive building in the world today. And it was one of the first uh, cities type, you know, castles or whatever you want to say that was erected after the breaking as well. To get the Ajas, so the Aes Sedai together, you had a bunch of factions. And we don't really know, you know, too much about, you know, what they, what they were all doing. But you can see, but we do know that uh, the, Aja, or the Aes Sedai started consolidating power. People started taking power, uh, attacking other Aes Sedai, saying, no, you're going to join us, whatever it is. And so there's finally a big meeting uh, between all these different factions to make just one group of Aes Sedai. We don't really know everyone involved, but there, you know, the leaders showed up. Uh, there's this lady named Elisane Tishar, Tishar, E L I S A N E T I S H I R, Elisane Tishar. She became the first uh, Amirlin seat. All right, the first leader of the Aes Sedai. It was determined at this meeting that she would be the first one. And what we do know is after this meeting, some of the factions did not submit, did not want to do it. And they talked about those leaders. There's actually records in the White Tower that those leaders were captured and steeled, which means they were, you know, um, their, their ability to touch the power was, uh, was severed. So they could no longer do that. So they were basically forced to submit to the power. And interestingly enough, the the leaders of these factions were seven. There were seven factions and seven leaders, and now we have seven Ajas. And so it's stipulated that those um, Ajas come directly from those seven different factions. So the structure of the White Tower is that there's an Amarlin seat who's like the head, Aes Sedai, the one in charge. And then there's a keeper of the Chronicles, which is her assistant, kind of takes notes and the records and everything. And then after that, there's the the seven Ajas, and each Aja has a, a leader called a sitter. And so the seven sitters meet with the Amarlin seat and the keeper, discuss the, the going-ons of the White Tower and Aes Sedai rules and you know all that stuff they're kind of the governing body and then each Aes Sedai has to choose which Aja they want to join join anything to add to that so I I think so uh if I remember right that each Aja has three sitters right not just one okay so so a sitter is kind of like a senator right so say like there were seven states in the entire United States. The sitters would represent the senators from each Aja. And the Ajas, they have their leaders, but they're all called something different, right? Like the Green Aja, one of the Ajas, their leader of the Aja, the head of their Aja, is known as the Captain General. Right. Right. And then like Gray Aja is like head clerk, Brown Aja is first chair. Uh, you know, and it goes on and on. So they all have different uh, 
titles. But it's kind of interesting because you learn through reading the books that that it's not common knowledge, right? Uh, if you're not from the Green Aja, you you don't know who the Captain General is, and it also sounds like just because you're Green Aja doesn't mean you know who it is either until you're given that information from you know raising in the ranks or just whatever you know circumstance so the the leaders of the ages are, are held in in uh, secrecy which is weird if you think about it right because it's almost like the factions chose these leaders as a way to continue to fight the good fight in some resistance and now they'll never tell the other Ajas who the leaders are. So yeah, and the sitters are generally like your your eldest serving or you know your more political savvy of the of the groups, you know. But it, it is definitely a power of position because they get votes inside the tower. Uh, you know, they have votes. Obviously, there's 21 votes. So the you know they definitely is position of power. Uh, I think it names who the sitters are somewhere for these groups but I, I don't think it's really important to the story yeah so let's uh let's talk about the the individual ajas and what they what their missions are um so one of them is the red aja and their primary goal is to protect the the land from all the men who can channel who can touch the the one power or the true source so they hunt down these men who can channel and gentle them or cut them off from the source which is gentling is the equivalent equivalent to stilling for women so that's their main purpose is they want to you know protect everyone by hunting down the the men who can channel and neutralizing them but in as things go on they kind of get more than just hey we don't like men who can channel we don't trust any men like leaders or pretty much anybody really that's their their main goal uh, they don't have any warders because they're men right so they are warderless they just depend on themselves mm -hmm. yeah uh, they're also the largest aja they have uh, somewhere around 200 sisters no i don't think there's ever direct counts for how many uh people are in each aja but the best guess i think is approximately around 200 sisters which is about 20% of the entire tower. So they're quite large and uh, a lot of people fear them. Uh, you know, they're no nonsense people. And, um, it, and most of like everyone I read about just aggressive personalities, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and just have this outward hatred for men. They will not put up with them. Yep. So it's kind of uh, crazy. Um, their, their leader, their leader, uh, is known as the, as, as highest, not the highest, just highest. And, um, I, I don't know who it is at this time. I, I know that at the last battle who would, you know, around the last battle, they say who it is, but I don't know who their leader is right now. Yeah. So next up is the blue Aja, which is the one that Moraine's a part of, um, <clears throat> And their primary focus is to champion worthy causes to, and to promote justice. They're good at uh, maneuvering politically, you know, getting in the right circles. They're administrators. And since Archer Hawkwing um, 
their Aja has produced the most Amaralyn seats more than any other Aja. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Yeah. And they're, so they're one of the smallest um, Aja's they're, they're the number six, number six in size. So six smallest, second to smallest, whatever you say. <laughs> um, and uh, their leader is known as first selector. Um, they, and it kind of makes sense to me that most Amirlins would come from the blue Aja because they, you know, they're, you know, seeker of righteousness and justice, right? They, yeah. you know, take up causes and support them. And it seems like that that would be kind of um, drawn to, uh, you know, what the I said I kind of stand for. You know what I mean? They, you know, they're searching for those things. So it kind of makes sense to me that they're in charge. Yeah. Most of the time. And it looks like the red and the blue Aja just have one leader. Next up is the brown Aja. And they are seekers of knowledge and to preserve that knowledge. They're kind of like the librarians of, of the Aes Sedai. <clears throat> and they are, they're uh, governed by a, a council and they're, always studying and making sure the library is, you know, has as much books and knowledge that it can get. A lot of the new talents are discovered by Sisters of the Brown Aja. We'll see some Brown Aja. Uh, Brown Ajas actually play a good, important role uh, throughout the thing, even though they're not, you know, really everywhere. Like we're going to see a lot of, you know, a lot of green Aja, a lot of red, a lot of blue. Um, Brown Aja is kind of in the background, but they play a very important role in, in about everything that happens. So, uh, and, you know, because knowledge is power. And in the end, Brown Aja shows that they are very worthy of, of that statement. Yeah. Next up, the Green Aja. Uh, they're the Battle Aja. So they, you know, they're ready. They're getting everybody ready for the last battle for Tarmon Gaiden. And they fight Shadow Spawn. Uh, dark friends, you know, the whole, the whole gamut. And they actually like men. <laughs> They're kind of the opposite <laughs> of red, right? Um, so they have warders. The blue and the brown have ward, warders as well. But the green, they have at least one warder. Some, some of them have multiple warders. And some of them marry their warders or have relationships with their warders. They use their, their warders well. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of strange so uh well uh in book three maybe two um the uh i think it was Egwene asks you know how do i know which which aja to choose you know how do i know which is mine uh you know would this be a good fit for me and i don't remember who she was talking to but they basically said well i'm green and one of the big things is that you have to love men not just like them, like a blue, like blues just like them, but you have to love them. But they're also known, right, as the battle Aja. Yep. Uh, they are the, the Aja that is to take up the good fight when the fight is there. You know, you know, they're there for the last battle, and they've always said that they will be ready and prepared for that battle, and they will lead the forefront of the charge. So they mean business. And they're also one of the larger Ajas. Uh, they generally side with blue. Uh, they do not like red as well, obviously, because they like men and, and they don't. Um, but many of them will marry their warders 
and uh, we'll have multiple three, four, five warders. And I've always thought it was weird how uh, beneficial a warder is, but how many I said I don't have one. Like right. even if, like if I was a red, you know, a red I said I, how, how, like, how would you not see the benefit of it? Like, I hate men, but I don't want some guy with a sword protecting me just in case. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've, just, I've always thought that was kind of a weird I see it as a sign of weakness, but. Oh, yeah. I guess I can see that. But, yeah, like, I don't know. I always thought that was, like, a strange thing. Like, like I'm just like, yeah, no, green has it smart. Like, you know, you know, why wouldn't I have three to five of the deadliest blades in the land defending me? Yeah. To watch my back while I wreck havoc and destruction. Yeah. Well, and because too, because they're so like, even though the the three O's give them a lot of wiggle room, right? They find a lot of wiggle room in those words. At the same time, they're very restrictive, right? They cannot use the power to kill anybody unless in self-defense. And uh, you know, if someone just sneaks up close enough. You don't have any time to use any powers, right? And or shoots an arrow from far enough. But if you have three to five of the you know highly trained guys, well then you you should generally be okay. So I, I don't know. I've always thought that was uh, strange as far as the philosophies of the group. Yeah. So I think back to that conversation with Egwene. I think she wanted to be green because she was still in love with Rand. And her goal was to marry Rand, to bond him and marry him. So I think that's why she chose green, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, but then that plan went by the wayside. But that's initially. That. Yeah, definitely what, what I said. Because by this time, by the time she was raised as accepted, right? She was not really sure with Rand. Like she knows she loved him, but, right. you know, then there was... Min was in the picture. Oh, did I ruin crap? No, this is the spoiler part. <laughs> spoiler. Min was in the picture, and so was um, Elaine. Elaine, but they right? weren't when they were accepted in the tower. They weren't all. Oh, Rand's the greatest. You know, they didn't even really know who he was. Well, Elaine did because what happened when he fell into the courtyard. But I, I wouldn't say she was in love with him. She was just thought, oh, he's cute. But, yeah, that's true. But Edwin was still in love with him at that point. Yeah. And then she was like, you know, swooning over Gallad like everybody else. And so I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. But yeah, and uh, she ends up, she she never chooses Anasha, right? I thought she chose green. Did she choose green? I can't remember if she chose green. Yeah, I think she did. Huh. I don't know officially, but she always ad- identified with green at least. Yeah, okay. So anyways, so after green, we got uh, yellow. In yellow, they have a strong talent for healing. They're devoted to healing sicknesses and injuries and also finding new, new cures and methods for curing diseases. So that's mm-hmm. kind of their, their thing. The yellows are healers. And Nynaeve ends up being yellow. She chooses yellow because of her background growing up as the wisdom of Emmonsfield. Yeah. I've always thought like if we were to read, you know, 15 years, 20 years past the end of the book, that she would be the head of the yellow Aja. At least. Yeah. If not Amarlin. Right. Because she, you, she ends up being, you know, one of the most powerful 
uh, channelers that's been known for since ever. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, she can do things with healing that nobody else can do, like delving and things like that. And, and we'll learn more about that later. But uh, it, it's pretty interesting how it all works out and, uh, with Nynaeve joining the yellow. Yep. So after that is gray. And they we don't really hear much about the gray. I mean, they're there. Every once in a while, one of the Aes Sedai is a gray. We learn a little bit about them. Um, but they, they're, they're mediators. They want consensus and harmony and peace. When kingdoms are trying to come up with treaties and stuff, they're there to facilitate those treaties because of their fairness and their mediation skills. But also they have a, a good eye to make sure the tower's interests are protected too. And then was there anybody uh, significant in the gray? Uh, I don't remember any specific, you know, uh, important Aes Sedai from from the gray aja or even the white for that matter right uh i think the maybe ones that we hear most about is yukiri uh but even her like we just hear her name a lot we don't really she doesn't really do anything i think they were more important uh like during the trollock wars and things like that yeah and uh you know during ardor hawkwing's time and so they're there, but for our story, for this specific story, as far as, you know, as it goes, their importance just isn't there. So we don't really, like, we know that the gray Aja exists. We know the white Aja exists. We just don't get to see a lot of them because, you know, what they stand for and what they do just isn't too important for the time. Like, you know, because the gray Aja is talks about diplomacy and mediation politics and stuff. And here comes the dragon reborn who is literally the, the destroyer of diplomacy and mediation and politics. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's like, what are gray Aja going to do? Like, uh, you know, here in the Corinthian cycle, it specifically says, you know, he will break all, all treaties and bonds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Grey Aja has no chance against that. Yeah. Um, so I just think they're destroyed. And then I mentioned the White Aja. They're the last one we're going to talk about. Um, they talk about logic and philosophy and the, the same thing. You know, why logic is great to have, philosophy is great to have. We're talking about the end of battle and end of times. You know, like, uh, you know, I don't have time to talk about your philosophy. We just need to win. You know, I just, I they're just the importance of their ajas are, are really reduced in these events. Yeah. Not very involved. Like you said. Yeah. Just not for them. But I, I know that there's some names mentioned that we'll see over and over again, but I just, I, I don't remember them. I yeah. Guess they're not significant players. At least that I can remember. Yeah. And they don't really talk about the warders. I know white Aja rarely bonds warders. It doesn't really say much about yellow, but we know for sure that I need bonds a warder. Yep. All right. So that's the seven Ajas. And then I think it's in this book where we start to hear whispers of another Aja, the black Aja. And it's always, they always deny it. Oh, there's no such thing as a black Aja. There's no black sisters, blah, blah, blah. So, but eventually we do find out there is a black Aja and there's no, they're not an official um, part of the white tower. They're kind of a embedded faction from the dark one. That's behind enemy lines. The so discord and chaos there in within the White Tower. The sisters, when they become Aes Sedai, they swear the three oaths. And since we're 
kind of talking about them a lot lately. We'll just say what they are real quick. So they have to hold the oath rod, which is a tarangural that makes the oaths binding. And then they swear that, number one, to speak no word that is not true. Two, to make no weapon with which one man may kill another. Three, never to use the one power as a weapon except against shadow spawn or in the last extreme defense of her own life or that of her warder or another Aes Sedai. So that's the three O's they take. But somehow these Black Odds are able to circumvent these three O's. And we learn in the story that they, they actually swear different oaths on another oath rod, right? I don't know if it breaks the, the three O's and makes new ones or you know, how that whole, I can't remember how that all works, but the the black aja oaths kind of sur- supersede the three else they're able to lie and kill and do things like that mm-hmm. yeah so it says they forswear their old oaths now what that means like like you said like is are they just swearing something that's a greater swear like i forswear these in the name of these one these promises right mm-hmm. or if it actually just totally breaks it but i i don't think it actually ever says what their oaths are does it i know it like one of them is that they can't uh and we learn this from varon right that they can't disclose information or that day they'll die yeah but that's the only one i really know maybe she says more but i can't remember i think it talks about it somewhere in the white book we assume that these rods are some of the binding rods from the age of legends because there were seven, the seven rods of whatever it is. Uh, remember when Rand becomes uh, Luce Aaron Telemon, and he's like, I'm Luce Aaron Telemon, leader of this, leader of that, um, summoner of the seven oath rods or something like that. Hmm. I don't remember and, that part, but yeah. And so it's, it's stipulated that this is one of those rods and that they may not even be using it for for the correct reasons. Yeah. But we do know Agenor was threatened to uh, have to uh, swear on an oath rod. So maybe that's what they're for is they're more of like a binding, like, okay, you can't be trusted with the one power. So we're going to have to bind what you can and can't do. Mm. Agenor the Forsaken. Yeah. He, and he's, he, because so before he became a Forsaken, he was already doing illegal biological experiments and so, and he was caught multiple times. So they finally threatened him. Look, you're going to have to, if you do this again, we're going to have to summon an oath rod. And then that, it says, that's why he went over to the dark, you know, to the forsaken. Cause he wanted to do that thing. Yeah. He wanted to corrupt whatever he, and maybe he wasn't even doing it for evil purposes, but whatever he was doing was obviously against, uh, you know, their culture, you know, the cultural beliefs. Yeah. Yep. So that's the, the Ajas from the Aes Sedai. How many black Aja you think there are? I don't know. It never really says because they're, their cells are groups of three and they only know like two others, right? One one cell and then another cell. And mm-hmm. each cell knows two other ones. So they never, and they never really meet. So they can't. I got the impression there's like 20, 30. Well, we know 10 or we know 13, 13 yeah. right? Uh, In the tower. But yeah, because there's, so if red represents 20% and they have 200, so there's about a thousand sisters. Mm-hmm. 
So you're thinking just like 20 or 30, which is like 2%. Yeah. Cause well, the 13 leave the tower and then there's still some more there, but not a lot. So I, I don't know, 30, maybe it's a very small yeah. percentage. I'm, I'm looking it up right now. Just trying to see, uh, so what there, I know there's a couple of things we do know is that most black Aja come from the red, red Aja, right? I think it's implied that, yeah. The, at least the major players. Mm-hmm. And, and I would think, and, and it's been suggested, I know I've read on some boards that they are more likely to become black Aja because that they already hold hate in their heart for men. Yeah. Well, and plus so, they don't have the, like if someone turns Black Aja, their warder is going to know. So they're either their warder has to turn as well, or they have to kill their warder, which causes and raises questions. So it's easier for the red to do it because there's no warder attached to them. Oh, so so I'm looking here, and and I'm just reading. It's on a wiki, so you know, take that for what it is. But they're saying that there's 210, 210 sisters that were Black Aja. Oh really? Yeah. That's a, why didn't they just take over the tower then? Right. It's like one fifth of the tower, right? So yeah. it says forty-eight were red, uh, thirty thirty-eight were green, right? Mm-hmm. Thirty-two were gray, twenty-eight were brown, twenty-one were yellow, twenty-two were blue, and seventeen were white. And mm-hmm. I would think that white would be generally the the smallest because they're known for their logic. And I don't understand how logical it is to be like, oh, uh, yes, we should aid the dark one because he will kill everybody else and not us. Yeah. Right. So you would assume that would be the least one. But I always thought blue would be the least one just because of Moiraine, right? Yeah. Um, but so uh, where, is there like a footnote as to that number, like where they got that number? Because that seems really high to me. Yeah, no, uh, let me let me read here. So here it says, during the Great Purge, Egwin Alvier com- commented that six more Black sisters were found outside of Varen's list. However, the former Aja of four of them is unknown. Below are the number of Black sisters per legitimate Aja in Varen's list, plus the two revealed later. So apparently these are the numbers that on the list that Varen gave, gave them. Wow. So it's like, it's in the books. Yeah. I forgot about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's what it says. Now I, I I'm a, I'm gonna go look that up. Actually, I'm gonna look it up and and see, but that is a lot, yeah. right? They totally uh, could have took over the White Tower. Well, they pretty much did take over, right? When they put a light in power, because she was just like a puppet Emilyn. Yeah, and Alver Alverin. Yeah, she was the black sister in charge, basically. Yeah, yeah, she was definitely in charge, and. Um, and I remember reading that some of the leaders of the Black Aja got together and they were like, maybe we're just going to have to remove Elida because she's becoming such a nuisance. Mm-hmm. And uh, so interesting, but, th- but they had a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of history and stuff like that. I mean, they've existed for not just recently, you know, yeah. they've existed for a long time. Uh, so, but, but the one that always broke my heart was Varen. Yeah, she was in the wrong place at the wrong time, it sounded like. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how many were like that. Yeah. They were kind of stuck, but they and they couldn't get out, but they tried to make the best of it. Yeah. Uh, and I always wish that if you've read New Spring, you know, you'll kind of understand that uh, 
at the end of it, Maureen was convinced Cad Swain was Black Aja, and Cad Swain was convinced Maureen was Black Aja, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so obviously something happened between the books where now they're maybe not sure or different or something, but it's never really mentioned again that they think the other one's Black Aja. And I've wondered like, huh, what, what settled that agreement? What settled that? Yeah. So was Cad Swain blue? She was green. Oh, she was green. Mm-hmm. I yeah, de- yeah. Definitely a battle Aja on that one. Mm. Okay. And how do you think she lived so long? I've always wondered, do you think that she uh, somehow got out of the oath? The oath? Yeah, maybe. Maybe she, because the, the knitting circle ladies, they lived really long. So maybe yeah. it's kind of the same thing. Because I think I remember reading like that Varen is one of the oldest, right? Mm-hmm. in the tower and she's like 200 like just barely 200 years old and cat swain's like 400 and something years old hmm. yeah things is you know if you guys have insights on this let us know but yeah these are the ajas a uh, lot to know about them they're going to be mentioned over and over again so it's kind of good to get your feet under you as far as who they are what they stand for where you know where they are to what they're doing and they all play great roles in for the good or for the bad sometimes for both i think my favorite aja if I had to pick one, would have to be green. Yeah. Green Aja for sure. Yeah, Just because the last battle, and, and I have the benefit of reading that, right? But because of the last battle. <laughs> True. Yeah, I'd pick either green or blue myself. Most likely green, but be a warder with the green. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, some good information. If you guys have additional information, please let us know. We'd like to hear more about what you know about the Ajas. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us here on the 4th Taviran Podcast. Um, This is episode four, and we'll be getting into episode five here in the next week or two. So look for that. But uh, join us on social media as well. We're on Twitter, like I said, Instagram, Facebook. And you can also check us out on Patreon. Uh, Support us on patreon.com slash thecrediblenerds. And you'll find bonus content there. We usually add up to about five minutes of bonus content and sometimes even more. So join us there for more credible nerds, more fourth to content and you can follow us on all those media sites and uh, join us on the conversation. Let us know what you like about the show, what we could do better. If there's a segment you want us to, to do that you find interesting, let us know too. And want to thank you guys for your support and for joining us and we'll catch you next time. See you guys. Maybe one question I've always had is why does it seem like Lan leveled up <laughs> by the end? Of right? Because in the first book, he's like chasing the Midril around or he's fought some Midril, but he doesn't just like destroy them. He wins, but he doesn't just destroy them. And then by the last book, he can kill like 10 at one time. Yeah. Huh. 
yeah, and he, well, I think he was changed when Moraine died, in quotes. Um, he kind of went, he just lost every, you know, will to live or you know, he was just like, whatever, I'm, I'm doing this. If it kills me, well, fine. You know, he kind of, before he was always holding back maybe a little bit. So he didn't die because he needed to protect Moraine. And then when she was gone, it just didn't matter anymore. So he kind of went that extra, got up that extra spurt or he leveled up. But then he married Nynaeve. But I think he'd already surpassed, you know, he got to that level and he didn't go back. and He, he didn't have to go back anymore. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my theory. But there, I think it was even more than something more than that because he, like you said, he leveled up pretty high for the last battle. Right. I mean, obviously, we've always known he's a great swordsman. He's an amazing warrior, leader, whatever it is. But we just see such a tremendous difference in his fighting between the first one and the last one. And it's not like where we see Rand, where he kind of gradually gets better over time, uh, you know, from learning and getting better. I mean, he was always awesome. And he's already, like, older. So, you know, what happened that all of a sudden he just, you know, just took it a step and I know some people will say you know like well he finally embraced death whatever that means right and so he was he he was fine just going out there and being way more crazy because he didn't have anything to live for right before he was there like look I've got to live so I can keep protecting Moraine and I've heard seen arguments like that on other threads but the problem with that is now he's married to Nynaeve or Nynaeve <laughs> and uh and so he has something even greater to live for. And, you know, so I don't think embracing death is necessarily uh, the correct answer. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know either, like, you know, why I, I think your explanation is as good as anything that, you know, he went through a change. Uh, but I don't understand how that change just made him so much more amazing. Yeah. Amazing-er? Amazingest? I don't know. <laughs> made him better and all of a sudden he's just this this brute force that nothing can stop nothing right i mean he kills probably the best swordsman to ever live ever yeah and so <laughs> i don't know just kind of I, I think when he rallied the the borderlands together when he showed up when he accomplished that and showed up i think he was even something happened maybe in that whole journey because when he showed up he was a lot more confident because he, he was always trying to fight his heritage right and 90 basically forced him to gather the borderland people well, when he showed up with that i think he was a different person but i don't know how he'd gain more skill and and all that from that experience but mm-hmm. i mean maybe it's a focusing right he's more focused in mm-hmm. more um, you know what I mean? Kind of like uh, decided to live in the void full time type thing. Yeah. Maybe I could see that, but it just seems so strange to me, like how much better he became between book one and book 15. Yeah. It might just be a simple explanation that Brandon, Brandon Sanderson wrote up. So he was different. Yeah. Yeah. It could be something simple. So, I mean, I think that's probably the only question that I have today is, you know, uh, from reading, especially these first 20 chapters, uh, 
you know, from what he is here to what we see later. Um, and so, uh, I, I don't know, but it kind of all makes sense, you know, like, cause everyone always talks about, he's just this amazing, you know, uh, fighter, one of the best that there is, uh, he's fighting for something that none of us would ever understand something greater than you and me. Right. Uh, for his land that was betrayed and destroyed. Uh, you know, I mean, think about it when they, they raised the banner, you know, and all the people, you know, he ran up, went across the borderlands to go fight the final war and Nynaeve went ahead of him and those people were crying and hugging each other and like yelling, the golden crane flies again. You know, you could already see that he was, he represented something better than, than what we could even wrap our heads around. Yeah. And that might've been it. I mean, just finally embracing his true purpose and that focus and having all that support. Yeah, kind of like I finally get a do because his whole life was to, you know, he, I'm going to die fighting for my lands, you know, and now he gets to do it. So, you know, like it might, you know, could just be something as easel's focus. So I don't know, but I'd like to hear what people have to say. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. And who did he fight? Was it Demon Dread? Yep, Demon Dread. Yeah, they call it, uh, he started calling him something else, right? The Great Ball. Uh, yeah. I don't remember what he called himself, crazy man. But, uh, yep, he fought Demon Dread. I called it, called it before the books came out. I was the only one that was right. <laughs> that was a lucky guess. It was an educated guess because I'm <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah. That was a pretty sweet part. Yeah. So, I don't know. Give us your thoughts. Tell me I'm right. If you tell me I'm wrong, uh, I don't know. I'll be sad. Yeah. Okay, 